Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Yulia Joja. I'm a senior fellow with the Middle East Institute and an adjunct professor with Georgetown and George Washington Universities. And I'm joined today by... Giselle Donnelly. I work at the American Enterprise Institute, and we're also joined by... Donald Burrohash. I'm also a senior fellow at AEI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to emerge along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoy this episode, as per usual, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. And today is a special day because we are joined by Mikola Bielieskov, um, who is a senior and analyst for the military department of the NGO Come Back Alive in Ukraine. Um, we'll learn more about um, his um, NGO. He's also affiliated with the National Institute for Strategic Studies with the presidential office in Ukraine. And um, he's uh, kindly joining us today on Labor Day to um, talk about um, the Ukrainian counteroffensive in Kherson how things are going, um, how they're being perceived on the ground in Ukraine, and um, also about how, what we can expect um, from um, the operations in general as we're going into the fall and everyone is getting a bit jittery with fall coming to Europe and to Ukraine. So, Mikola, thank you so much for joining us. And maybe we can start broad with the counteroffensive, um, we know we did a little bit of convincing to get you to join simply because there is a blackout. Um, and so um, we understand um, that we have this situation, so we are not trying to get from you details that you cannot disclose, but we're really um, keen to hear from Ukraine um, how people are perceiving um, strategically and just on an individual level how the fighting is going six months into the war. Everybody's keeping their fingers crossed and trying to focus on her son. Here, the media is partially covering it. Um, and so um, it's very helpful if you can help us uh, put together kind of an understanding of where we are right now um, in terms of the battles. So how are you looking at her son? Uh, thank you very much for the invitation and thanks for this opportunity to share my uh, perspective. Well, to start, uh, this counteroffensive was a uh, long expected scene. And if you remember in Western media, uh, includingly, there was this kind of debate whether Ukraine indeed would switch from defense to offense in a southern region because it was declared in broad terms a couple of times uh, from the highest levels from Volodymyr Zelensky, from head of MOD. Uh, and there was this kind of debate that whether this long-range fire strikes would be enough or not. Now we can say at least that they were not enough. I mean, strikes targeting uh, bridges, targeting logistics, targeting command and control nodes, uh, and other priority targets in the rest. So now we can say at least that uh, Ukraine switched to classical offensive. So it's not only some long-range strikes uh, and, and just it. And it was indeed uh, um, expected uh, by uh, Ukrainian population. And uh, expectations were set not only by the statements from the highest political and military leadership, but people in general want to see temporary occupied territories liberated. 
and it's a kind of general expectation and uh, we would like to see it and uh, by this that in a uh, six months of this all-out war ukraine was able to mount uh, limited but still counter-offensive is a kind of uh, example is a kind of evidence that war switched to another period that ukraine was able to gain some momentum even gain some initiative because before this whole situation we were following russia so they switched to east we switched to east and with the situation in uh, southern ukraine in the right bank of Kherson region it was the first time when our perspective actions uh, this declared possible counter-offensive made russia to move their troops so it's uh, also a kind of good example uh, for ukrainians but uh, yes it was expected and especially it was expected because for mother in the months before ukraine switched to uh, offense we, we laid preconditions this was a lot of strikes targeting russian priority targets in the rest so it was a kind of anticipated and it's a logical continuation of a process that started back in the end of July 2022. If I may, I mean, the, the defense minister sort of um, made plain what has become the key intent of the, of the campaign, and that is to damage Russian forces rather than just gain territory per se. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's a question of which should be the higher priority, just uh, trying to reclaim sovereign territory or to destroy the forces that are preventing the, rec the reclamation of sovereign territory. And the, the minister said it was more trying to destroy Russian forces and Russia's ability to sustain their forces, and then that the territorial gains would naturally fall into place afterward. I personally think that's a wise move. It's a one that will preserve your Ukrainian combat power and personnel. But the question is whether that meets the political expectation um, of the Ukrainian people. And tangentially, it also calls into question whether it meets the sort of expectation of Americans and Western supporters of Ukraine whether Ukrainians are, are being patient, but the rest of us are prone to be impatient. So, uh, Miguel, if you could tell us sort of how the this emphasis on patience and the destruction of Russian forces, is that something that the Ukrainian people uh, seem willing to accept, along with the, the fact that it may take some time to translate that into uh say reclaiming the right bank of the of the river uh well despite the fact that in general ukrainians are as impatient as everyone else interested at the same time they have the trust in their especially military leadership in their capacity to do a right campaign campaign uh, that is proportionate to capabilities at hand because yes uh Alas, we, we, we don't have uh, this quantity of especially heavy equipment to do World War II classics. And that's why we, we needed to improvise. We needed to chart our own way that take into account both uh, limitations, limitations in terms of deficit of heavy weaponry, but at the same time the capabilities provided specifically by the U.S. government, by the U.S. public. First of all, this uh, 
HIMARS launchers and guided multiple launch rocket AMO, very precise one, very very good system. And uh, yes, we, we find the proper balance. I would say that first we lay some preconditions, we do this kind of shaping actions, we softened the Russian rare. And it's not only relates to the immediate rare, you also remember that a string of accidents in a temporary occupied Crimea that also uh, directly affected the Russian ability to uphold the front line. So, despite the fact that Ukrainians are impatient and they are the number one who want to see this conflict to end as soon as possible, at the same time, Ukrainians have the trust in their military leadership, the trust in commander-in-chief uh, of the armed forces, uh, of ability to find the proper balance to, to do everything right. Because uh, I think every, every uh, person with common sense understands that uh, it's a kind of situation for the, especially for military leadership when you when you need to do everything carefully because if it's successful everybody would claim the success if if it's a kind of lo losing attempt then everybody would blame specifically military leadership so i would say that uh, ukrainians uh, are ready to to take some time and they understand why it took some time to to lay preconditions and then only to switch to to offensive action and in general of course everybody understands that stakes are high because it's not only about reclaiming territory, it's all, not, not only about um, crushing some part of military forces, it's first and foremost about sending a proper signal to the whole world community, but especially to our Western uh, countries uh, that support us most, that we indeed are capable of offensive, we indeed are capable of reclaiming temporary lost territories, because uh, it's all about political ends, political goals in the end, and uh, for us, this, this offensive is much more important even in terms of grand strategy, in terms of strengthening the hand of those who support Ukraine, who are making the case for Ukraine, and not only about just reclaiming some part of the temporary lost territories, but again, as for me, I think it is a kind of case that would be studied in a, in a future, by the future academics, by the future students of grand strategy, when a proper balance was found at the every level, tactical, operational, and grand strategy. I think this last point that you made is just so important because obviously Western assistance, um, especially deliveries of heavy weaponry, are, are critical to, to, to Ukraine's success. In this war, we saw um, the president authorize addition $3 billion in, in military aid last week. Last week, uh, Obviously, the, the political case for that continued assistance is, is, is more difficult if the war becomes static and, and occupies, you know, not the front page of newspapers, but but you know sections that are buried deep inside newspapers and um, and, and 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 so on and and so forth. You tweeted recently that Russian foreign policy and and, and Russian strategy has been as of late reduced to just a series of high stakes, highly high risk gambles. The war, which hasn't been an obvious success for Russia, and now Russians are trying to essentially. Uh, extort the West, especially Europe, by reducing the supply of energy and natural gas to, to Western Europe. And, and, and I mean, the, the sort of spirit with which you tweeted that suggested that you think that much like the war itself, this strategy, this effort to, to, to you know, get Westerners to, to acquire us to whatever Russia is doing will, will engender unintended consequences. Just shifting, you know, away from 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 the battlefield for 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 a moment, I wonder 
if you could expand on that a little bit how you know how do you see the the coming months unfold in terms of you know western determination to to stand by ukraine especially if you know energy bills are what they are in across across western european countries and 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 if, and if, if russia continues to to sort of use use energy supply as as a source of leverage over the west uh, first of all, I see uh, the case when Russia is trying to, to leverage its energy supply as indirect admissions that zero attempts to directly coerce Ukraine, they failed. So every time uh, Russia sees uh, a stiff resistance out of Ukraine, it tries to undermine our Western partners, who are especially important for us. And yes, uh, I think it's a kind of consensus among experts that right here, right now, uh, Russia modified its strategy uh, and uh, they work from the assumptions that uh, Russia need to undermine Western resolve and especially they need to undermine the resolve of uh, Europe that alas become so dependent on Russia energy, especially Germany. It's a, it's a disgusting scene basically that uh, it, it had taken place and uh, that's uh, zero calculations that to, they might try to use a gas supply especially as a kind of leverage but i think that uh, uh, it would be another case when everything russia tries to do it backfires in the long term because uh, already a couple of times uh, european representatives including chancellor schultz uh, uh, he said that uh, russia lost its status as reliable gas supply it means that uh, yes it would be a kind of difficult challenge in winter but we would definitely undergo it. And then Russia w would see that uh, Europeans are switching to another sources of supply and in the long term, they would be undermined. So they think that uh, they would undermine Europe in a short uh, term, but basically they would reap negative long-term consequences for themselves and uh, it won't work. Uh, in the end, the strategy of undermining uh, Western resolve, Europe resolve readiness to aid Ukraine as for me, the most uh, important signal in the end, we receive, since we received the most uh, of our military assistance from the U.S. And uh, recently I got this very positive, very positive signal indicators that six out of 10 citizens of the U.S. They are ready to, to support Ukraine despite inflation, despite, heavy, uh, despite highest prices for uh, any kind of uh, goods and so on. So for us, first and foremost, is of course, it's about Europe, US continuous assistance. And then it's, of course, about Europeans. But I think Europeans, they would get this lesson, they learn this lesson, and Russia uh, would be undermined, their position would be undermined, especially in the energy field, and they, they would have negative consequences. So yes, it would be a kind of challenging winter, challenging period. But uh, I think since this, with this war, Putin, Putin, he put uh, the whole the whole issue the, uh, in. I would say that in unequivocal manner. So there is no room for compromise, no room negotiation. It's only one way to go. Just unequivocally support for Ukraine if we want to to see the cause of peace and security all over the world strengthened. Nicola, I think you're putting in more diplomatic terms what um, we discussed previously on the podcast, and that essentially. Um, at this moment, at least, um, Western European support doesn't matter as much um, because um, there's the United States, um, obviously also the UK and Poland. And we also shouldn't forget when it comes to energy that now the United States is helping out Europe massively and making up for 
um, for the gas that Europe is not buying from um, from Russia. I'm wondering if you can talk us also through um, through the next few months as it's getting colder on the battlefield too. I've seen, I think many of us have um, a few analyses also here in the West. Um, I don't know if um, there, there are voices like that in Ukraine too, who are saying after this offensive um, in um, focused on the South in Kherson, let's assume that it will be one. Um, we have heard that um, the United States has been wargaming it out um, with Ukraine. The stakes are very high. It's unlikely that it will be lost. Um, but then the cold temperatures are coming in. And, um, and I think we're expecting from Putin um, some statements vis-a-vis -vis the war in the next week or so. Um, but temperatures are already starting to drop. And so is that something that will sort of temporarily freeze um, also the Ukrainian offensives overall. Um, you talked about taking initiative now for the first time. As we're moving into October and November, will low temperatures, in your understanding, um, temporarily freeze the conflict until spring? Or what should we be expecting um, from Ukraine on the battlefield in the in the months to come, especially in the winter? Can, can I add a quick footnote to that? I'm sorry. You know, the Russians, especially Russian soldiers, will experience winter as well, okay? They will be the most poorly supported and supplied human beings probably across Europe. I mean, imagine that if you're... Uh, you know, uh, a Russian infantryman stuck on the front lines wherever they may be come cold weather season. And and you're wearing summer uniform. <laughs> you're wearing summer uniforms because, first of all, your supply system hasn't gotten you winter uniforms. And now it is very difficult for the, the supply system to even deliver ammunition and fuel for your vehicles, okay? The people who are going to be the most miserable come wintertime are going to be the Russian soldiers who are on the front lines. So it's funny that you say that, Giselle, because I think the conventional wisdom is, is that, you know, winter favors the defender in, in, in Eastern Europe. <laughs> Tell it to the people who fought on the Eastern Front. Uh, I mean, you know, we're just having to sit there and freeze with with few supplies um, and no ability to 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 do anything about it. Uh, it is, it, I would think, is going to be a big, big problem for the Russian command chain. Uh, well, in general, I agree with, with this assessment that since uh, we already saw in the course of those wars that logistics is a weak, weak spot, uh, one of weak spots, basically, uh, of Russian army, and it would be kind of a challenge for them to, to satisfy the needs uh, of the troops in winter conditions because it's quite a demanding scene to satisfy them. I would say that the most uh, important factor that would determine the, the course of the event during the uh, second part of autumn, winter, and the beginning of uh, uh, next year's spring would be the tempo regeneration of the capabilities. Because uh, exactly. clearly we, we see that uh, both for, for Russia and alas for Ukraine, 
the tempo of using the capabilities is much much more quicker than the tempo of regeneration of the capabilities. And that's uh, number one uh, determinant factor, I would say. So uh, sure uh, that uh, in some near future we would see a kind of uh, decreased level of hostilities, not because of some kind of political agreement or even a kind of truce, but because uh, both sides, they would face uh, the, the net results, the effects of uh, more than six months of fighting, the fighting of most intense war in Europe since 1945. So it would uh, be the main reason why the, the, the intensity of hostilities would, would decrease. Uh, and also along with, with the factor you mentioned that logistics is a weak point of Russians and it would be very difficult for them. Because on the other hand, we, we have in history a lot of examples, both in modern Ukrainian history and also history of world was a second when uh, war fighting still took place during winter months in Ukraine. So it's uh, not, not a problem itself if both sides have proper kind of capabilities. It's also taken place in the modern history of Ukraine in the course of fighting in the uh, end of uh, January, beginning of February 2015, there was this battle uh, over the Baltsevo salient. Russians were trying to reduce the salient to take control of the Baltsevo. And this, this took place in the middle of winter. And yes, it, it demonstrated that war fighting in winter is very challenging scene, despite the fact that war fighting in general very challenging scene, but war, fighter, war fighting in winter is especially challenging scene. But I would say that... Uh, Take into account the fact that first that resource regeneration is slower than resource consumption and also poor lo Russian logistics. It would mean that for some time war fighting would decrease, but it doesn't mean that, for instance, Russia and Ukraine, they would they would cease to, to do this kind of ex artillery exchanges. Alas, it would continue and people would continue to suffer because we understand that Russia would continue to do this. Uh, terror by fire they are doing uh, all along the front line people are living maybe 50 50 60 70 kilometers from the front line they are last under constant threat of shelling so yes the intensity of fighting would decrease for the number of factors but it doesn't mean that russia would stop for instance doing this uh, terror by, by fire it would continue to do it for sure your point about regeneration, I think, is a really critical one. If you just do, you know, let's compare. Um, as long as outside support, and particularly American support, um, remains firm for Ukraine, Ukraine's ability to not simply regenerate more rapidly the kinds of capabilities that they have, but also to acquire new capabilities uh, far outpaces what the Russians could do. Everybody's, you know, sure, the Russians are still bringing in a lot of money from their energy sales, but their ability to, to translate that into military power uh, has been really, really crippled. Because the Iranian drones. Yes, if they're, if they're buying Iranian drones, they're, they're shopping down market, you could say. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, right. And and even things like there's been stories lately about the ball bearings needed for the railroad system, which is, you know, the Russians are a railroad-based army. So, you know, you know, setting aside the question of how much money the Russians could throw at it, what can they what can they actually buy? Um, you know, unless the Chinese come in on the Russian side in a more overt way. If I may, relatedly uh, to 
to this, um, there's also this question of manpower. And, you know, why doesn't Putin do general mobilization and, and you know, there are all these sort of men that could be called up to arms, obviously, obvious sort of political constraints that the regime faces. I wonder what your take on that would be as a source of potential, you know, Russian regeneration uh, and whether that's likely to happen in some shape or form or not. With regard to this question of why Putin is not ordering open um, mass mobilization, I think it's not only about political constraints, it's also about uh, objective constraints like lack of capacity to satisfy the needs of this, uh, like imagine one million men called into arms, uh, ability even satisfy not only with equipment, not only with the armor, but uh, some basic protective uh, scenes like bulletproof yeah. vests, like helmets, like first aid kits, because we see that Russians have problem with all this kind of stuff. That's why they are suffering such uh, losses compared with Ukraine. So it's also about the problem of meeting the requirements because Russia is not a USSR. It was a USSR that was, yes, with obsolete equipment, but still ready to to produce mass-produce equipment, Russia is not in this case, uh, to quickly mass-produce equipment in major quantities, uh, especially after such a losses, because in half a year they lost more than uh, uh, half of their main battle tanks, for instance. So they, they took 12 years for them to create the spark, to uh, improve it, and then they lost more than half just in six months. So it's a quite a challenge to, to recreate it. So... Uh, they would face uh, a lot of challenges, a lot of problems if they try to satisfy the needs of some hypothetical one million uh, uh, troops called into arms, especially uh, if uh, in this case uh, West would be consistent with export control. Because alas, we saw a lot of cases when decisions were formally adopted in 2014 to restrict the export, but still somehow these uh, components, they find their way to Russian weaponry. And if... Uh, uh, in this case, today, uh, export control would be successful, so it won't matter whether Kremlin has enough of uh, finance to fund uh, mass production. So it's about uh, ability to, 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 to satisfy uh, the component needs and everything is imported from the West first and foremost. So I think that uh, it's not only about political constraints, it's about objective inability to satisfy the needs of uh, hypothetical one million men calling into arms. Uh, after heavy industrialization of the last 30 years, the loss of uh, industrial potential and so on, it's also mm, affects them. And just to follow on the comments uh, about uh, mm, comparing Russia and Ukraine in terms of capabilities, even right here, right now, we can see that the battlefield balance in a precision-guided munition is shifting in Ukrainian favor, thanks for the U.S. assistance. And it's not only about the HIMARS, not only about guided multiple launch rocket system armor. We also recently saw very successful employment of these AGM-88 uh, anti-radiation missiles, and they cleared the way for employment of Bayraktar TB2. So first we decrease the ability of Russian surface-to-air missiles and recently involved this Bayraktar TB2. It's a kind of example how we can can do a complex scene, a complex combined arm warfare, a kind of sequence of event uh, and to think in advance how we can leverage this kind of capabilities and it's sure uh, is, is changing uh, in, in Ukrainian favor, this kind of balance. Uh, and uh, when we saw the continuous supply, definitely it would strengthen Ukrainian hand. It would uh, aid us 
sure we would need to think creatively and innovatively and not maybe in a template of world was a second uh, to to liberate territories but still it creates a good opportunity uh, for, for Ukraine uh, and especially if we compare with Russia that spent a uh, majority of its precision munition with no direct strategic results. I want to make a wisecrack of Russian manpower and that's as long as the Russian vacation season is open in Western Europe. It would be very difficult to recruit from Russian nationals to to, to get them to come into the <laughs> army. So as long, unless there's a you know own goal like a visa ban that's a, a you know applied, uh, the Russians will probably still have a manpower challenge. Uh, Mikola, I also want to ask you um, something that we uh, we always make a point of asking um, because we are privileged here with mostly a U.S. audience and we know nothing is perfect. We're big supporters of Ukraine. So from your perspective, what is it that Ukraine needs in terms of military capabilities from the United States most urgently has perhaps not gotten yet or has not gotten enough um, of. We know that the pace and the strategy has um, shifted over time um, thanks to pressure from uh, many sides that um, the administration here is far less reluctant than it used to be um, in terms of providing military capabilities, but we know that there's still areas that are tabooized, is that the word, <laughs> by the administration. So as you're looking onto the battlefield um, and you're, you've amazingly assessed what differences different capabilities from the West have, um, have made on the ground, what are the, the instruments, the tools that you need, um, that Ukraine needs most? First, I want to start from appreciation of what U.S. government did uh, and government in general, not only legislative, not only uh, executive branch of government, but also legislative branch of government that is a kind of driver of uh, support for Ukraine. Because uh, were it not for the U.S. assistant, we won't endure that much because uh, uh, U.S. government uh, promised for us uh, much more than we spend annually for armament because before 2022 we spent only 1 billion annually for armament now it's more than 10 billion promised and mostly delivered so without it we definitely won't endure as to our requirements well first i would say that we need everything because <laughs> we, we, we lost quite a lot it's the biggest war biggest regional war and people learning the, the, the hard truths that were known to, to, to those who underwent two world wars, that the rate of consumption is huge and so rate of regeneration of resources should also be huge if, if strategic goals are to be attained with, with military means. But if we're talking about priorities, so my, my, my list of top five priorities when I ask first, it's uh, about tube and rocket artillery because it's artillery versus artillery wa warfare. And we need more of supply, both classical tube artillery and uh, armor for them. And also we need more multiple launch rocket systems. The next, what we need, that uh, uh, mill-grade UAVs, because uh, uh, we, we buy ourselves commercial UAVs, but they are not resistant for electronic warfare. We need uh, mill-grade UAVs, more of them, because recently there was another promise of uh, mill-grade UAVs, but we need more of them to create this kind of reconnaissance strike complexes to effectively leverage improved firepower we've already provided. 
Also, we, we need uh, surface-to-air missiles, but not the one to cover country uh, only, but also those that could cover land formations, because people don't see the difference, but we need these surface-to-air missiles that could cover land formation on the front line, because despite the fact that Russians, they don't dare to move their piloted aviation in, in depths of Ukraine, they fear Ukrainian air forces, but they still try to leverage their attack helicopters, uh, different combat planes on the front line. We also need the means of communication, uh, command and control devices to ensure proper coordination. Because yes, we receive them, but we have approximately 1 million troops grouping of forces and the demand for means of communication, secure means of communication is a great one to orchestrate the mass employment of uh, formations in case of need. And the last priority is, of course, means of mobility. To, to ensure means of protected mobility like uh, M113 or more personal carriers like Humvees, like Mraps and others because we, we, we lost less than the Russians in terms of uh, armor but, but still we, we, we still endured quite uh, a lot of losses so it's uh, my top five priorities and uh, with enough uh, of weaponry in each category supplied basically I would say that with this, we can create conditions for Ukraine to switch uh, to, to offense, not only limited to, to the south, but maybe in other areas on the front line. So it's a kind of our priorities. And also, we are currently asking about this attacking surface-to-surface -surface missile, because not all targets uh, uh, within temporary occupied Ukraine within the range of guided multiple launch rocket systems, despite the claims by the representatives of the Biden administration that Ukraine is just enough with guided multiple launch rocket system ammo. It's, alas, not true, because in Crimea we have a lot of sites that need to be destroyed, that need to be degraded, and basically we can just imagine the situation when the whole front line on the mainland, south mainland, crumble with a lot of targets destroyed in temporary occupied Crimea. So we need attackments. And also asking about uh, fourth-generation multi-purpose fighters, at least initial bench of maybe 12, 14, F-16 to start this long process of switching to the multi-purpose multi first-generation fighter. Uh, that's, that's also our priority because for Ukrainian airspace to remain contested, we need both surface-to-air missiles, which we were promised, luckily, by the Biden administration, but we also need piloted aviation to cover the holes of these surface-to-air missile bubbles. So it's also our priority. Can I ask you on, on that final point, uh, whether uh, the deal that involved Slovak MiG-29s has ever come through, which was announced a few weeks ago, the sort of idea that, that, that Slovakia would provide you with with their, you know, 30-something-year-old MiGs, and, and then they Slovaks would have their airspace covered by the Czechs and Poles and, 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 and Hungarians in the... In the in, 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 in the meantime, there was a lot of discussion, obviously, about these 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 sort of fighter jet transfers. Do you know if if any of those have actually arrived in in Ukraine already, or or what was the latest update on that? Well, I haven't seen uh, any official statements, official report, and as far as I understand, that was a kind of debate, debated, discussed, but very tentatively. So. Uh, Slovak side said, well, in principle, we are ready, but at the same time, they hinted they want to see some kind of compensation. Uh, if we compare, for instance, we also transferred some surface-to-air missiles from Slovakia. We were provided it free, 
But at the same time, they're saying we want to see some kind of compensation, as far as I understand your statement. So it was a kind of discussed in broad terms. So yeah, there might be kind of possibility, but nothing was discussed in detail. And even if we imagine, for instance, the situation that this uh, squadron, one squadron, is transferred to Ukraine, well, it would it would get some time, of course, but uh, right here, right now, we already, at the moment, that principal decision shall be made, because it would take some time to implement this principal decision to start this process of uh, mastering new type of uh, fighter jets. So we're already on the point is that if we want to see Ukrainian airspace remain contested, which is also very, very important priority that Russia don't get air superiority in the end for Ukraine to fight successfully. So if we want to see Ukrainian remain contested, we already need to have this kind of decision. And there's, there's very little time to spare uh, and uh, the decision already need to be made so even if we see in the nearest future this slovak mix employed by ukraine which is not 100 sure and guaranteed we, we're already at the point when we would like to see this decision about f-16 or f-15 or f-18 adopted and slowly started to be implemented Finally, before we let you go, uh, Mikola, tell us a little bit about um, Come Back Alive. Um, it's uh, one of the major charities that you have joined recently. So tell us what they um, are doing on the ground and um, what your role is um, with them. Uh, well, uh, the history of uh, Come Back Alive is quite a long one because it was established back in 2014, the year when Russia originally started this limited aggression against Ukraine. And it happened that uh, armed forces at that time, Ukrainians, they existed on paper more than in reality. And people were basically crowdfunding. People were compensating for the lack of consistent government policy. And uh, it's a kind of initiative that was established back at the time. And uh, first and foremost, it concerned itself with the provision of uh, equipment that might be used in a front line, like a thermal imaging devices, like means of communication, like computers, uh, like uh, means of protection, uh, bulletproof vests, helmets, and so on. So this initiative, it started back in 2014. Uh, and uh, since uh, February uh, 24th, 2022, a new chapter started because it's all-out war, needs are great, but uh, it's uh, the same number one priority to have uh, this uh, equipment that can be uh, bought, uh, transferred to uh, the frontline troops like uh, UAVs, commercial UAVs, like uh, means of communication, like computers, like means of individual protection. It's what number one priority, but of course, there are also uh, department that is about training troops to utilize equipment provided. It's not only just raising monies, buying hardware and transferring. It's also about getting people proper skills. And also there are other number uh, of other departments, but I'm working at the analytical department. Basically the idea of the leadership of the, uh, of the charity foundation, charity fund is not only to do current uh, job to meet current needs but also with the knowledge gained from the uh, from the dealing with the military 
uh, and distill it into analytics and then influence the uh, state policy in the field of military buildings. So it's a kind of long-term project to, to be something bigger than just charity foundation. And it's good that there are plans for development. So I'm, uh, uh, I I'm engaged in this kind of stuff that uh, distilling these lessons learned and some uh, recommendations for the government. So it's priority of our analytic department. But uh, for sure, uh, my colleagues in the first couple of months of this out, all-out war, they were engaged in day-to-day -day business of just providing a large army of this kind of hardware that is possible to be bought by the charity foundation. It sounds like something very much worth supporting and very meaningful work. Mikola Bieleskov, thank you so much for joining us. We are very grateful for your analysis and for your top shopping list. Um, we'll try to, um, to uh, push that forward um, as we do um, with all things um, in support of Ukraine. Uh, from me, Yulia Zhoja, and my friends, Giselle Donnelly and thank you for listening to The Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line from running from the Baltic to the Black Sea. The Eastern Front's newsletter is now live. You can sign up for, new, for our newsletter through the link included in the show notes to receive bi-weekly updates of newly released episodes, exclusive Q&A with our hosts, and to stay up to date with the most recent op-eds and articles from us on security challenges facing the Eastern Front. And you can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.